0: It first started with the why. Why do we do what we do and why should anyone care, right? And having those honest, honest conversations. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is we realized that the food system is just, I don't want to say broken, but kind of in a sense where everything is coming out of big boxes, plastic bags off of those commercial spaces right mm-hmm. and the not enough attention was truly going to the farm and truly going to you know the people that were working hard to provide better food and building relationships so we wanted to change the way we operate within the food system and we wanted to change the way people view the food system Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors
1: Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process
0: with your host, Emmanuel.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country to talk about their path to success and how their heritage influences their creative process. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Chef Davel Bristol-Joseph, a renowned chef from Austin, Texas. Chef Bristol Joseph shares his fascinating journey from his childhood in Guyana, discovering his passion for pastry, and eventually partnering with Chef Kevin Fink to create the celebrated restaurant Emmer & Rye. As we dive into his unique cooking style, we'll discuss the two types of creators, the physical and the emotional, and we explore how his restaurant, Kanye, seats itself apart from other Caribbean restaurants. Join us for an engaging and enlightening conversation with the talented chef Tavel Bristol Joseph. Hi, chef. How are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very excited to uh, be here with you at Canje, uh, yes. Austin. Yeah, yeah, face yeah. Face to face. I love those recording. Absolutely. You know? And uh, congrats! I uh, you know just been. Uh, I mean, everyone was aware that uh, you, the the restaurant got. Uh, the James Beard semi-finalist for 2023. So yes. We keep our fingers crossed for you and for your team. <laughs>
0: thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. Beautiful. It's good to be recognized for hard work, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have a first question for you because you are originally from Guyana and I want to understand what food and smell that reminds you from uh, your childhood if you close your eyes and you think about that time.
0: Yeah, wow, good question. Honestly, what if I close my eyes and think about my childhood and think about the food and the flavors, I'm thinking fine leaf thyme. I'm thinking mangoes. I'm thinking coconut milk. I'm thinking butter because I'm thinking roti, right? Mm-hmm. So not even butter we use. We use lard. Roti, you said, correct? Yeah, okay? roti. Um, okay. I'm thinking uh, cook-up rice. It's kind of like our version of fried rice, where you put uh, all these different types of meat, coconut milk, rice, herbs, and spices in a pot and boil it. And then, when the rice is cooked, everything is in there. One one bowl. That's all you need. Okay. <laughs> one pot and one bowl. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking about all those like just amazing tropical flavors, yeah. man. I'm hearing waterfalls. Um. All of those things. That's, that reminds me of my childhood.
1: Okay. So what was the first one things that you said? You mentioned a leaf. Yeah. Fine leaf thyme. Okay. So what is that? Yes. Yeah, I so, never heard about this. Yeah.
0: So it, it's just, um, it's a herb that is predominantly used throughout the Caribbean. There's a couple of different types. There's the, the, the thyme that's, it's like small. Uh, the leaves are really small on a thick branch. And then there's the thicker one, which we call thick leaf thyme. Which is uh, the, all of those things, uh, which is thicker, and the 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 and it's, the leaves are bigger, maybe like an inch. Okay. And um,
1: is it close to bay bay leaves or no?
0: Like in no, terms taste, not at all. Yeah, no, no, it's close to like oregano. Oregano. If okay. there's gonna be okay. something that you compare it to, okay. it's closer to the oregano okay. family.
1: So how do you use that in uh, in cooking um, over there? Man, in we Indiana? use it in everything, everything?
0: <laughs> every rice, every stew, every okay. si- you know seasoning you put time into okay. that. That's one of the herbs that we use in this restaurant too that constantly reminds me of where I'm from.
1: Okay. So how was your or what was like your childhood in uh, Georgetown in Guyana? Childhood
0: was uh it was interesting, you know. Um they had uh it had the bright moments and uh it had the 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 rough moments too because you grew up in poverty and when you you know, I wouldn't say like, I try to think about and find the beauty within everything. Honestly, when you're growing up, you, you're you not thinking that you're poor or how you're treated or anything of that nature until you're out of the situation. And then yeah, you're like, wait, wow, that was rough. Damn, but we made it, <laughs> right? It definitely has its, it had its ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, There were moments where I was very happy and there were moments where it was some of the darkest times of my life. Um, so you lost your father, correct? Yes, yeah. I lost my father when I was seven years old. Mm. Yeah, he uh, I lost him to gun violence. And uh, my mother was in America, so I kind of grew up there in Guyana, just kind of like moving from family to family to family, things of that nature. Family members are friends of family members, transferring from school in different areas and different neighborhoods. I did that for probably it was about about five years of yeah. moving around and then finally settling on one and that was the that was the, that was my aunt's house where I learned to bake before I came to the US. So mm-hmm. I got I got to her house. I think I was uh, probably um, if my memory don't drop me right, it was probably I was like 14 or 15 when I got to her house uh and then i went to high school So it's a lot of
1: years of struggling
0: yeah (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, you you put on a smile on your face you know what i mean because you you think when you think about like now we're having this conversation it always takes you back because it's Mm -hmm. not something that you think about on a daily basis you know so how was your experience of like baking with your aunt ah man it was amazing man because i got a sweet tooth so bacon, and the thing is with her from the time that I know her, she always had like a pound cake baked in a on the glass covering on her table and she would always have like some type of fruit juice in the refrigerator so in case anyone comes over, they have something, of something yeah yeah man so that was like a staple in her house so she's always like bacon every on the weekends also she um she's We were big in the Methodist Church, so we had to like bake for Sunday school and stuff like that. She would have cookies and cakes for the kids, so that's where I used to help her bake every weekend. Where you
1: got the bug? Of like <laughs> uh, the bug of like uh, yes. you know
0: like pastries and baking. Yes, yes. Honestly, that was uh, that was the first time that I made a cake. That was the first time that I learned how. You know, she taught me how to do those simple things like making like the pastries in Guyana, like mm-hmm. the pint tarts and stuff like that. And I really wanted to play basketball, but part of my punishment was her um having me in the kitchen helping out. Mm-hmm. So. That grew from a punishment into a love and a passion. Okay. And then I just kind of uh went into high school. And in high school, we would, you and have st- to you're pick. You're
1: still in uh, Guyana. In Guyana, Guyana yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And then uh, in high school, you kind of pick your trade. Mm-hmm. Because the, there's not, the, I think there's like only one college. So you, if you can't afford to go to college, what the government do is prepare you to go right into the, the workforce. For, yeah. So in high school, you would learn a trade. So you can take that now and go right into okay. the work field. I did home economics because there was a lot of baking and cooking and things that involved mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. that. And uh yeah, just kind of took that and never looked back. Okay. And at that time, your head was in pastry then? Go yeah, ahead. my head was in pastry, but it's interesting because what I discovered is that as much as it was in pastry, it was never a passion at that time. I was kind of like just doing, it was a means to an end, in a sense, right? This is what I know how to do. But I had a lot of, you know, as as we kind of touched on that really, is I had a lot of trauma, I had a lot of issues that I was dealing with, just being a kid and learning how to you know, be loved or learning Mm -hmm, how to mm -hmm. care. Like I was going through that process. So as much as I was going through like this process of learning how to cook and all of that, that was never my, at the time, it was never my passion. It was just something that I did, that I was good at. So how
1: did it become a passion?
0: It became a passion for me 14 years ago. Fourteen years ago is when I said, "Okay, this is what I'm gonna do," which is crazy to think, right? Because I've been doing this. I'm I'm 42 now, so I've been doing this since I was 17. But the journey in which how my life has has kind of manifested, it was where. The entire time I went to the New York restaurant school, after I left Guyana and yep. I came to America, I went to the New York restaurant school. I worked at the River Cafe. I worked at Braeburn. I worked at the W. That entire time I was creating, I was doing all of these things, but I think like I was still kind of lost, right? I was still trying to find myself and who I am in that entire process without even knowing it. Because when I came to America, I pretty much had to restart my life. I was like a kid again. I like tasting strawberries and apples, we never had those growing up. Those simple I things, thought about that, yeah. You sure. know what I mean? That those simple flavors sure. that that everyone here sure. takes grew for granted yeah, and sure. grew up with, I mm-hmm. never had access to that. So it was literally restarting your Hmm. life again. And then moving here and now being with my family members, right? And so you move with living with my mother, right. Mm -hmm. And now I have siblings that that was born in America that I'm Oh wow. I have cousins that I'm now meeting for the first time. My life's restarted. So I was more focused on my on being and finding who I am Mm -hmm. and having my own voice And dealing with all the trauma that I've dealt with, I had to I was working on that the entire time. (laughs) Right. Again, work was just a means to an end. And I think when I got to Arizona, I was still that was still I was still doing what I was doing, but it's kind of like that that this is work kind of thing. And I believe when my um my when my kids were born that's when I said to myself, well, okay, this is what I have to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this. This is it. Mm -hmm. And And then I took it. That's when I started to ask why. That's when I started to really focus in on what I truly want to do and how I want to do it and how I want to show up and how I want my kids to view me and all of those things is when it started to like really gel
1: for me and transform my mentality so you kids were really like the the decision factor or to they yeah. to switch from from doing this to like really investing in it and finding yes passion yes of what you're doing day after day
0: yes 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 and 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 i know like in my mind it's like crazy to even think that all the accomplishment that i've that i achieved before them it was very much of like this is you got a gift right you know how to do this and you've been doing it for a long time so this is what you do but i think that when we when we talk about truly internalizing and figuring out what you truly are on the planet what what are you here for and giving value and purpose to your life you have to that's something that's created that environment has to be created for you you know what i mean i truly don't believe someone wakes up and say this is what i want to do and i know it i think situations and things happen in your journey that convinces you that that's the right thing to do and i can honestly say my kids is the thing that happened in my journey that convinced me like this is the right thing that i should be doing okay
1: and your kids now are 14 the age where you were mentioning like yeah 14 when you move with your aunt yeah correct yeah 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 absolutely Absolutely. absolutely when you have that spark to say, okay, this is what's going to be the rest of my life. I have to invest on this and so on. So how did it translate like on a daily basis? What have you done differently after that? Suddenly you had that switch, you know, in your brain. Yeah. Um That you are committed to this. And now, you know, that's yeah. You have a vision almost like of where you want to
0: go. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I did, I think I, I really started to own in on my craft, right? And own in on what are my strengths and my weaknesses. So I really, that's when I came up with a recipe book, like my personal recipe book. So that was my first step of like, I am going to create a book that <laughs> is all the recipes that I've ever worked on. And this is what it's going to look and feel like. I started to be more active in the kitchen instead of just saying like, okay, I'm going to be just doing um, pastry and focus on desserts. I started now to say, okay, great. I'm going to now be more involved with the savory side. I'm going to talk to them a little bit. I'm going to now manage and push these chefs to be better chefs. I'm going to now, you know, work harder than every single person. Right. So I'm going to be more focused, more driven. I'm going to be the first one in and the last one out. I'm going to be like really taking it to the next level when it comes to my, the effort and the work that I'm putting out. I started to push more hard than I've ever pushed in my life. That's how I started to you know, really like own in on the things that like, I knew what my, I was really good at making chocolate mousse or I was really good at making tarts and like started to own in on and micro in on those things where when I make a new recipe or something of that nature, I would use the things that I was great at instead of just like, let me just create something out of the blue and, and just Shoot at it. Like, no, now I knew, like, I can make this and I can do it well.
1: Okay, very good. How did you meet with um, Chef Kevin Fink?
0: Right, so that was around the same time that we were working together. So we both used to work for his dad. He was director of operations, and I was uh, the corporate pastry chef we were we were friends we were working through all the you know logistics on how to make this business better mm-hmm. and really pushing the boundaries in what we believe food should look and feel like we kind of had this common understanding and drive and push to be trying to change the the way how food should look, feel, and that's savory hospitality and desserts, right? How all of that presents itself. So we became friends, we were both hard workers, and we just kind of like realized that we work really well together. There was a lot of things that I admired in how he conduct himself and carry and handle his business. And you know, there was a lot of things that he admired about the way how I, my work ethic and things of that nature. So we just started to kind of connect and bonded. And when the, there was a time where he was like, hey, like, I'm looking for a business partner. I want to do a project, a new project. We had a couple of places in mind, Denver, Austin. And I think there was somewhere else that we were talking about and thinking about possibilities and then um, Austin is the spot that we settled on.
1: And this is when you guys created mister and Rye then?
0: Yes. We the- moved there and opened up mister and
1: Rye. Uh, it's been seven years ago. Seven years, yes. Yeah. 2015. Yeah. In Emmer yeah. and Rye. Okay. Almost eight. Yeah. Eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Almost eight years. Yeah. Absolutely. So how was that adventure of creating Emmer and
0: Rye? Oh, man. That was, uh, that was interesting. I mean it first started with the why why do we do what we do and why should anyone care right and having those honest honest conversations the other part of it is also the we realize that the food system is just i don't want to say broken but kinda in a sense where everything is coming out of big boxes plastic bags Off of those commercial spaces, right? Mm -hmm. And that not enough attention was truly going to the farm and truly going to, you know, the people that were working hard to provide better food and building relationships. So we wanted to change the way we operate within the food system and we wanted to change the way people view the food system. So instead of going to a farm and saying, hey, grow me 20 pounds of lettuce and I'll buy it from you every month. Uh, we went and say, hey, like, what do you grow well here? What grows well in this soil?" And whatever that is, we will buy that. And whenever it changes, we will buy that too. Whenever you, whatever you would like to plant, we will create dishes because we're the professionals. We'll create dishes that represent that. And same thing we did with the ranchers and Everyone, right? It's really focusing and building relationships. And so we created this concept that the menu changes pretty much every day. It's really focused on locality and seasonality. We mill our own grains. We make fermentation is a big yeah. part of that concept. So making vinegars, the whole spice rack is everything that's built off of like byproduct that we fermented dehydrated and made a powder and put it on a shelf and then when you're cooking you can add that to your dishes so there was a lot of thought that went into that space and it took us uh took us a while to get everything locked in but- so
1: so can you tell us a little bit I, I don't want to spend too much time on on MmnRI because we have to you know obviously talk about kanji where we are here today but how was this creative process at that time where, in fact, so you decide to work with local produce and products, uh, whatever is available, uh, whatever is delivered, you know, to the restaurant. So how, how do you guys then create like the menu on, you yeah. for the restaurant?
0: It was really interesting because let's just say it was a lot of trial and errors, right? It was a lot of, times where we thought something was going to be great and we were all excited about it. <laughs> and then we tried it and we we're like, Oh yeah, that's not right. Um, let's, let's never do that again. <laughs> um, so we, we kind of went through, I, I think that's the part of creating that, um, sometimes uh, a lot of people don't see or understand is that, yeah, we, you, we might have this one thing that works uh, that work on the plate that you get provided with or presented with, but it probably was made 22 or 23 times before that, that didn't work (laughs) and that we had to redo. Right. And how we run our, how that creative process goes. is like, you have an idea. Great. Let's work on it. Let's build it. Let's lock it in. Mm -hmm. And then we all taste it. And if five people Standing around, tasting a dish, and if five people can't say, yes, that dish is one of the best that I've ever had, then that dish don't make it. If one person says they, they don't like it, we have to figure out a way on how we can make it where we are. Because that's what greatness is, is when people, when we all can agree that something is amazing. And when that happens, that's when the magic happens. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. when you know you have a hit. And that's what we pretty much build, that creative process when it comes to food on okay how would you describe your um, style of cooking i'm very emotional i think that there's two different types of creators i think there's the physical creator and then there's an emotional creator i think a physical creator is someone that can bite into an apple and say oh my god like this apple these flavors are you know acidic and floral and duh, and they can go through that checklist and they can create something that highlights these different notes within that fruit or that vegetable. And versus an emotional creator, I feel like it's more of a, how does something make me feel? So it could be where it doesn't have to be a physical thing and, and thing. It could be literally sitting in this restaurant, looking at all these colors, mm-hmm. smelling the food that's coming out of the kitchen and saying, based on all these smells that I have around me, I feel like this is a thing that I would like to create. Okay. I could look at someone like a fabric and say, or, or look at a glass of, 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 Water or or juice or whatever, and look at how the it the 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 water silhouettes off the side, and be inspired by that, and say that's exactly what I want something to look and feel like, and then create something that in my mind represents that emotion.
1: So I'm guessing this approach to cooking through emotion connected well as well with your own experience from childhood and correct and everything that you gather in your brain you know at that time and i'm guessing kanji is kind of like the expression of this on the plate correct absolutely a hundred percent
0: i exactly for you to get to that place you have to do a lot of that self work right Mm -hmm. you have to do a lot of that work where you're so focused on your emotion and where you are and to be present so when it came to Kanji, it was that same, that when it comes, when it came to Kanji, it was the same mindset of like, this is the smells. What well, kind of like that first question that sure, you asked yeah. me, these are the smells, these are the things that I feel and see when I get, when I think about my childhood. And then you, I kind of tap that into what are the dishes that I actually, that actually resonates with that? So like buttery and and flake. Okay, great. Roti was one of the dishes. I remember that. Spicy and oh, curry was one of the things. And so those are all these little pieces that connects. And also, I wanted to create a space that represented the Caribbean. I wanted to create a space that it wasn't, it's not a Guyanese restaurant. It's a restaurant that represents all the different cultures of the Caribbean. So we're moving from... You know, we're Haiti, we're Trinidadian, we're Puerto Rican, we're all of those things all embody in this space. And the menu is going to take you to that journey, not in one sitting, but eventually our goal is to continue to work our way through the Caribbean and discover new dishes that a lot of people may not know or okay. may heard of
1: but never tried. So two questions around this is first, how then... Kanji is different from other Caribbean restaurants, you know, around the country. That's one question. And the second question is when you want to represent like the different aspects of the Caribbean and connect to different dishes, then do you as well travel then to the Cameroons in order yeah. to get inspired and see what would resonate with the concept of Kanji? Both
0: of those questions kind of, the mm-hmm. answer is kind of tied into each other, yep. right? Because what makes kanji different for most is that all of the ideas in kanji is not mine, right? Because what I've learned is that I, I'm working with a bunch of very talented chefs that have developed flavor profiles and has amazing palate and professional chefs here has traveled all across the world, working in all these different restaurants. So how do we, why don't we not combine resources? Sure. Collaboration. At exactly. Washington. Right. Because the food that my mom made is amazing to me and to everyone that she cooked for, because we love her. But is that the food that I want to eat when I go out to a restaurant? No, mm-hmm. I want to eat that when I'm with my mom. So how do I create, how do I take that homemade dish and translate that into something that speaks to more people and to, to really tickle the palate of the masses? Mm-hmm. And I haven't like came up in the savory side, right? I came up in the sweet side. So combine my resources with the talent that I have around me. And that's how we're able to create these flavor profiles where we're making our own curry. We're our curry powder. We're, you know, making like our own sawfish. So we don't, you know, we ain't got to buy codfish, you know, we make because we butchered for the ceviche and then we dehydrated all the pieces. Um, we salt all the pieces and then we make another dish from that. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to, with this concept, been able to heighten a lot of the flavors that people may know that comes from the Caribbean. To me, I think really having all of these influences from from American to French techniques to Japanese techniques, using all these techniques while making a dish that represents the Caribbean, I think that's what makes us really special and makes the food taste different fermentation, all of those things are part of our cooking in our kitchen. And then I think the other uh, part of your question, I would say why that ties in is because these chefs are traveling. Mm-hmm. These chefs are doing these research, research. These chefs are bringing their knowledge from other restaurants that they have worked in and bringing that to the forefront, where when we sit down around a table and we start to create what the next evolution or what the next dish looks like, it's a combination of all these different talents. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to travel as much because I have six people that do a lot of traveling that bring a lot of that knowledge back to the table. So my job now turns into, is this... Where's the story here? Is this represent? Is these flavors represent the story that we're trying to tell? Let's tie it in, and that's where I'm the one that ties all of this this package together and make a bow before we present it.
1: What's the next step for Kanji?
0: We're going through a little bit of um, change right now. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna do some tasting and put some new dishes on the menu. We're gonna tap in. A little bit more i think we're in this evolution we are probably gonna you know touch in a little bit more of indo-caribbean vibes we're and, and and a little bit more we got a few dishes that's from haiti that we're exploring a little bit more too so we're just gonna kind of like see where it takes us but at the end of the day when we do the tastings <laughs> what tastes good that's what makes it <laughs> you know what i mean we are not gonna tie ourselves too far into a story and and not focus on does the food taste good or not? <laughs>
1: That's the main thing. So I want to switch on the on the topic because I you know I have the podcast since 2018 and only had a few African American chefs you know on on the show. Less than eighteen percent you know of chefs are African American here in this country. So, and I remember other chefs, you know, that I had before said that, you know, it's a challenge because they feel that, you know, African-American cooks, you know, didn't have like really like the same opportunities maybe than, you know, others. Do you see things evolving maybe slightly and slowly, but in the restaurant industry when it comes to opportunity created for African-American chefs?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, yes. There was a time where... That was very scarce. I'm sure it was not easy for you when you went to <laughs> 100%. New York. Of a hundred percent, it was. It was very scarce. When I mean, my first kitchen job, everyone in the kitchen, the only I would say African or Black people that was in the kitchen was the Haitian dishwashers and mm-hmm. and prep cooks and ground keepers and stuff like that. But I think that that has changed and that has evolved over time. And I think that that number. <sighs> I would be interested to see five years from yeah. now what that number looks like because i think with now with uh where we are and where we stand in the community i think that it's getting that i am me myself is seeing way more than i saw when i first started mm-hmm. right when i first started there wasn't any really around i i think Marcus Samuelson was the only person yeah. that I saw on TV. Yeah. No one else. I, and I don't know if I, I don't know if it wasn't there or I just wasn't exposed to it, but it, it, I, it definitely wasn't the ones on TV. And those are the ones that, you know, a Caribbean kid was looking for, right? Uh, cause I didn't have enough money to go to these restaurants to find out who they were. But then the question is this, right? When we say African-American chefs, are we talking about the people that are, that have like the Trinidadian restaurants on Flatbush in Brooklyn, that have the Jamaican restaurants around? Are they considered part of that number? I don't know. I don't know either. Right. Because there's a lot of that. Sure. Right. True. There's a lot of chefs in Mom Queens, and Pop restaurants. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In Harlem. There's sure. a lot of those. So those are the chefs that I saw. Sure. Right. So... I didn't see them on the platform mm-hmm. where it was on television sure. or it was talking about food and, media. and yeah. things of that nature. But when I was when I when I want to go to Maria's and get me some chicken and rice, I swear I went, you know, I think like for me, when we talk about there's two difference. There's a mom and pops and then there's the mainstream. And I think they wasn't present on the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's more present and it's inspiring a lot more and especially social media that has inspired a lot of this younger generation Mm -hmm. to see their own and see themselves within people and start to kind of follow.
1: And I think that number is going to change. And that's the role that you have now. Yes. Because, you know, established that You know, the way you are here in Nestin and, you know, nationwide and probably now the exposure, further exposure with, you know, the James Beard award, you know, there's, you, you have that role towards like the younger generation of African American, you know, cooks. And I think that you are part of a, like an association. Yeah. 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 So So can you talk to us a bit? Exactly.
0: So for that same exact reason, for me, I was like, okay, I I want to change what this view and what this the, mm-hmm. what what being a chef looks and feels like, right? For most of these kids that are in like the, let's say the inner cities or or a com- community college because I think that when you go to like a school like acoffier or something like that, you're seeing these sh- huge successful, um, chefs, their photos are all on the walls and they've been here and the school celebrate them and you get an access to that level of education and more importantly, that level of mentorship. That's what I realized. So what I wanted to do was kind of shift the narrative a little bit where I went to, I worked with the ACC, the Austin Community College, their culinary program, created a scholarship um, where I would pay for two students every year okay. for their sco- for their um, classes. Obviously, they have to meet a certain requirement. They got to be committed to school and whatever. And then, not only that, I am now mentoring them after school and throughout school and after. So, what I wanted to do is give them that access to someone that I would consider myself successful where they are now having the ability to get that mentorship that they would get if they went to any other big school and they have access to these different restaurants because I got friends in those spaces. Sure. And so they can stage. They can stage. Mm-hmm. They can go do internships, all of those things. They have That's access great. to that. So we started it three years ago and I've been able to graduate two students so far and we're picking another two this year. And then we're gonna take it from out of Austin and we take it to different cities, right? It's a two-year program. Okay. So we're gonna take it to different cities and kind of expand it. But I really wanted to start that scholarship because I wanted to inspire people that Mm -hmm. look like me, that talk like me, that act like me in our restaurant industry, and let them know that you don't have to fill in where you got the tall French white hat. And that makes you a chef. Sure, like a chef comes from within. A chef comes from inspiration. There's a lot of small details that you should be focused on more Mm -hmm. than what you think. Sure, it's beyond the French
1: culinary techniques. It's it's way beyond that. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. you're talking about mentorship, and so I have questions for you as you know, in that role of mentor and as well in your role of overseeing, you know, culinary programs throughout like the group with all the restaurant that you have, Um, obviously leadership qualities are very important. So how would you define your leadership style? I would define it as from the bottom up.
0: Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is I feel like most times or when I was, when I was in positions, when I was coming up, Leadership to me was this person in the front or this person in the top. That's how it was viewed. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was intentional or what, but in the New York culture that I would say that's how it is. It's like, I'm on top. You're in the bottom. Mm -hmm. I run this show. You do what I told you, tell you to do. That's kind of like how it felt all my life. I feel like, right? Even with how family members will treat you. It's do what I say, don't ask no questions. And I've always had a problem with that, but I've never, I never could voice it, right? But I've always seen that system as just, it's just not balanced. Um, so how I wanted to create it is we're going to do the hard work to build a foundation, but we we have new people and new breeds and new ideas coming in our doors every day. And not saying all those ideas are great. But what I'm saying is that some of those ideas are the ones that will change the world and change the way how we view the world. So we want to be able to create a space in which, like, for example, Kanji is going to be built. The foundation is set. We have worked hard to build a name, a representation in the community. We've done all of those hard work based from starting from Emma and Rye to here. We've built a trust and a loyal following of people. Every chef that comes into this space, now your goal is to now build upon the foundation that is set. You don't have to create a new culture. It's there already. Come with ideas that is going to help us to get to the next level, the level that I couldn't reach or I can't reach in my lifetime. Let's talk about those things. So our mission and goal is always to have this voice for the younger generation, I would say, or for the, I shouldn't say younger, because not everyone is younger, but the ones that will take us to the next level. Creating a space where we have, people have a voice, people are taken care of and treated well, a space in which i can inspire you to be better i'm very much that inspirational person because again i'm an emotional creator so i wanted to say I that. Can back talk to the emotions from yep. that emotional space all day long and i can see different perspectives because i've came from zero to where i'm at so there's not much anyone can tell me that can surprise me i've had a lot of losses in my life mm-hmm. so i've been through the gamut when you yeah, yeah. talk about someone that has every reason to fail but is successful enough to sit in front of you right now that's what i have to offer to the world and i think it's important that we tell our story while we're leading the next generation so they don't have to make the mistakes okay. we did
1: so what advice would you give a young leader you know on how to develop people listen i think that
0: You know, that is, and it's very basic, right? It's very simple, but it's very hard at the same time because Mm -hmm. just like people go into a interview and the interviewer have a list of questions that they want to ask you, how much are they listening to you? If every time they're, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's it's like those basic things that you see when you're talking to a leader or another manager, or you're talking to a staff member um, or someone that's lower on the totem pole than you per, per se, you have a goal in what you want them and how, you know, <laughs> you want them to show up. But maybe that's not the way they want to show up. Maybe that's not. So understanding people, listening, and and. Leadership to me is more about people's relation and how you can relate. It's, it's less about the task and more about the people that you have mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. do you mo- motivate and inspire them? Because the task that you have at hand, that could be minute compared to the potential that the person that you're talking to have. And your goal as a leader is to unlock that. Sure. Because it's always, for me, it's always bigger than what I'm doing now. It's always bigger than this. Like, it's bigger than kanji. So I can teach you how to do it the kanji way or I can teach you how to do it in the right way and with, or the way that we all agree is the right way that makes you better than kanji. And that's what we're always trying to push.
1: Very good. That's um, a very uh, thoughtful, yeah. you know, answer. So I really appreciate that i'm looking at the time we have spent you know more than 45 minutes talking already <laughs> and i have a lot of questions for you but i have to be respectful of your time so i want to finish the um, conversation with our rapid fire questions yeah so the first one is i always ask my guests is you and i we are going into a testing tour in austin mm-hmm. so Give me five spots that you will take me to that are outside, obviously, of your group because, you know, that would be too easy.
0: Yeah, right? We got got seven. It's hard (laughs) to pick outside of that. Um, Okay, so... Austin is a great... (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So (laughs) So we got Nixter. We got Suerte. We got... got, uh, NST now. (laughs) Yes, NST now. We got the Garrison. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Fairmont. Yeah. We got, um, Spicy Boys. Love their chicken sandwich over there. We got, uh, Birdies, mm-hmm. um, of the Black Hair. Um, amazing pasta. Ooh, I'm gonna get, uh, Valentina.
1: Oh. Barbecue. Okay.
0: Yeah. I'm also going to hit up Franklin's for some barbecue. Chill. Sure. Yeah. Um, if you
1: want to stay in line, right? Right. right, right. <laughs> I'm blessed
0: enough. I, 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 I'm able to. Oh, uh, you, you go. You go. You can go by, it, the, by, 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 the back <laughs> by the back door. <laughs> don't say it. Don't say it. I've never, I did not say that, Aaron.
1: Yeah. And I didn't take I yeah. Think, yeah. Don't, yeah yo, you are, you are beyond five. So great. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? My favorite guilty pleasure
0: food is popcorn.
1: Popcorn popcorn okay popcorn like buttered popcorn or Um,
0: movie theater popcorn i would go to the movie theater just to buy the popcorn and then go home with it
1: yeah really it's it's with butter then yeah yeah okay Okay. hmm. interesting (laughs) three cookbooks that uh, inspired you the most in your career what's cooking in guyana um
0: that was the first cookbook i had professional bacon volume one that was it and i think Marcus Samuelsson cookbook, The Rice. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's the what I yeah. That one.
1: Okay. Very good. What's your biggest pet peeve in a kitchen?
0: Uh, my biggest pet peeve is dirty towels on the table. Dirty towels on the table drives me crazy. And it's also very dangerous because you don't know if a pair of knife is in it or anything of that nature.
1: Okay. Last one. Beside the classics like condiment sauces and mayo and so on. What uh, condiments, spices, sauces, dressing do you like to have on hand at home? I have a
0: slew of hot sauces. Every place I visit, I always buy hot sauce. I'm bringing it home. So hot sauce is definitely there. And sriracha is the most commonly used. I think I put sriracha on everything, Everything. even ice cream sometimes.
1: There's one specific from Guyana?
0: Normally, like the housemate stuff. So, uh, like when I go to Canada, I got, like family is, yeah. make there. Everybody yeah. makes their own hot
1: sauce. It's like a, there's a special chili. Like, yeah,
0: it's called uh, Miri Mary, Mary pepper. Okay. Um, it's like these little, small, round, look like cherries, yeah. but they are spicy. Oh. But okay. uh, very, Weary-Weary peppers. weary very. Yeah. Peppers. Um, those are you put that in any hot sauce again and it's amazing that and mango we put those two together. are you using some
1: there? here and, uh, and uh, we or? make yeah we oh.
0: ferment here okay. so we don't get where pepper here okay but we do get the scotch bonnets, the scotch bonnets and yeah, habanero and stuff yeah. so yeah we we do some we do a fermented hot sauce here very
1: cool Chef, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. It was nice to see you again.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much, man. I think this was uh, fantastic. You asked the right questions.
1: Okay, thank Uh, you. I hope I was listening too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, the the difference with you, you got a tape recorder. You can go back and listen to it. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't have that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good to see you. All right, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Flavors Unknown podcast and listening to my conversation with Chef Tavel Bristol-Joseph. I love his story, from his early days in Guyana to his rise in the culinary world with the creation of Emma and Rye and then Kanye. His insights on the two types of creators and his unique approach to cooking have left me with a deeper understanding and appreciation for the art of food. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Flavors Unknown podcast on any podcast platform and visit our website at flavorsunknown.com for more amazing conversations with culinary leaders from various regions and backgrounds. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, keep exploring the Flavors Unknown. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.